now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi for Me Radio is live from the bunker. Hello, everybody. Welcome. We are live from the bunker, live-ish. Today is a pre-recorded program. We are on our way to number 500 at the end of the year. My name is Jason Hunt. I'm the editor here at Sci-Fi for Me. Glad to have all of you with us. Uh, this show is available on a number of different podcast platforms and such. We call it Sci-Fi for Me Radio. Hope you join us over there. And if you do listen to this show as a podcast, we do invite you to check out the video side of things as well because you never know. You might see something that you'd miss in the podcast. Now, um, I the, the, the opening of this... I said new from Ray Bradbury, and it kind of is, and it kind of isn't. So what we're talking about is a new book that's coming out. It's called Home to Stay. This is a new collection of Ray Bradbury stories as they appeared back in the day in the pages of EC Comics. And joining us to talk about it, one of the contributors of the commentary, Mr. Ted White, who is a writer himself. Welcome to the program, sir. Hi. So... Let me let me ask let me start with the background on this because when people hear Ray Bradbury they hear you know the Martian Chronicles and 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 that sort of the the, the books that he wrote but Bradbury was a very big comic book fan comic strip fan and this collection kind of came about because there were some comic book people who stole his ideas uh, how how exactly did this happen <laughs> well basically you, you have to understand first what the ec comics line was like uh around 1950 they uh moved into what was essentially new territory for comics they stopped editing their comics for eight-year-olds and started editing them for what I guess would be considered teenagers, really. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, they were uh, more intelligent comics. They were even at times controversial. Now, their controversies fell into two categories. One was that they did a lot of horror, horror and crime stories, which for the people who believed that comic books caused juvenile delinquency, this was strong ammunition. So that was one controversy. But the more interesting controversy was that they were willing to tackle subjects that were a little outside the, the norm. They were willing to talk about racial prejudice and other social issues of the day, which were essentially controversial. Now, in the midst of all this, they started uh, writing stories. Well, basically, I say they. They was a man named Al Feldstein, who was the editor of the crime and horror comics. <coughs> Pardon me. And he, uh, I guess he encountered or had been reading some of Ray Bradbury's stories, which at that time were not yet in book form. 
they were all originally published in mag pulp magazines uh many of them science fiction magazines but also some mystery magazines and uh obviously uh al had read some of these and let's just say he borrowed from some of them for <laughs> several stories that he wrote for his comics and Ray found out about this because either Ray was reading EC Comics, which I kind of doubt, or someone pointed them out to him, which is far more likely. And uh, he got in touch with the EC people about it, and everything was resolved amicably. Uh, EC said, yeah, hey, uh, let's actually do your stories as by you. And they uh, started putting these big boxes on their covers saying inside story by Ray Bradbury. And they basically took many of Ray's better and more important stories and rendered them in, in comic book form and did so with considerable sensitivity and artistic ability. I mean, one of them was There Will Come Soft Rains. Now, that is a story which has no characters in it and no dialogue in it. It's all about what happens to an automated house as, as society is breaking down. And so it's told entirely in narration. It's an, a very atmospheric story. And it was drawn by a guy named Wallace Wood, better known as Wally Wood, who was one of EC's star artists. And he just did a first-rate job on it. And it was somewhat typical. Uh, another story that they used was uh, The Flying Machine, which uh, was uh, drawn by Bernie Krigstein, who was easily the most experimental of EC's artists. And he did The Flying Machine, which takes place in... Uh, China of, of at least a millennia ago, uh, and he drew it entirely in what amounted to a Chinese style of art. Beautiful work. Stunning, in fact. Very poetic. Uh, again, rather atmospheric. So E.C. rose to the challenge of Bradbury's stories. Yeah, there it is. Uh, they rose to the challenge of Bradbury's stories and rendered them well in comic book form. They didn't just use them. They, they sort of augmented them visually and, and did a first-rate job on it. Well, and, and not only did you have Wallace Wood as an artist, you also had uh, Frank Frazetta was in, in this mix as well. I mean, some, some names, I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, this is, this is some stellar lineup of talent. Well, Frazetta, Frazetta was a major artist largely after his EC work. You know, Frazetta really gained fame for his covers for Conan books, and for the movie posters that he was doing. But those were all in, in, starting in the late 50s and into the 60s. And before that, Frazetta had actually been ghosting Little Abner for Al Cap <laughs> uh, until he got into a disagreement with Cap. 
which I won't go into because it's uh, somewhat scandalous. <laughs> but uh, when he was working for EC, he was largely working with his friend Al Williamson. And the stories were really Al's to which Frazetta contributed art. Frazetta only did one or two stories on his own for EC. So most of his EC contributions were via Al Williamson. And Al liked to use his friends uh, on his work. Uh, he also used Roy Crinkle, who did beautiful alien architectural cityscapes and things like that. And he used Angelo Torres, who was another artist who was in that general style. And, and they were all friends. They all hung out together. And when, when Al, Al put a lot of work into his story so he wasn't one of the fastest artists so he would use other artists to help him finish stories so he'd meet his deadlines yeah and 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 they kind of created a group style which was uh very expressive and and, and certainly amongst some of the best art that ec used well, and and the other part of that, to your point about about this happening before Frank Frazetta blew up, a lot of this is stuff that happened before these before these names became household names, if you will. I mean, Joe Orlando is in this mix. You've got Wallace Wood in the mix, Frank Frazetta, and and it's interesting to see Jack Davis. The yeah, it, it's interesting to see their early work. And and know where they were going, and now you've got this brand new collection. Which yeah, I, I don't I don't know how how long it's been since all of this stuff got published because I don't think this has ever been collected before. It all appeared between 1950 and maybe 1953. In other words, that was the time period in which these Bradbury stories were published by EC. So it's essentially a, a time capsule, not only for, you know, people who appreciate Bradbury's work, but for all of the artwork as well. Because EC eventually went away uh, and and I think became essentially kind of sort of became Marvel at some point. You know, that, that not, not directly, but I don't know how you mean that, but basically, no. No. OK, uh, I have that wrong then. Uh, EC was owned by Bill Gaines, who inherited the company from his father when his father died in a boating accident in 1947. And uh, EC had been created by his father, M.C. Gaines, the man who created the first the world's first comic book back in 1933. Uh, and uh, he had for some years been associated with D.C. Comics the Elder Gaines, and he was responsible for the Flash, Green Lantern, and Wonder Woman comics. But he sold uh, his his uh, line to the DC people around 1945 and started something called EC, which was originally stood for Educational Comics. And uh, he would, he believed that comic books should be more than just pablum for kids, that they should have educational value. And he started out with something called picture stories from the Bible. And then he had picture stories from science, picture stories from world history, what have you. 
Unfortunately, none of these comics sold very well. They weren't accepted by educators and they were uninteresting to kids. Yeah. And uh, after his death, his business manager, a man named Saul Cohen, who ultimately was my employer when I edited Amazing Stories and Fantastic Magazines uh, in the uh, 70s, uh, and he, he filled me in on a lot of what happened. Uh, and basically, he changed EC from educational comics to entertaining comics. And he got rid of the picture stories from titles and brought in crime comics, uh, crime patrol, things like that. That was one of the titles. And then uh, when and he did this after Bill Gaines, after um, MC Gaines died and Bill Gaines was not interested in the company for more than a year, uh, but it gradually became involved in the company. And once he became involved in the company, that's when things started to change and get better. So uh, the uh, company became what most people think of as EC around 1950, with what they called their new trend comics. Well, in 1953 or 54, something called the Comics Code Authority was created. And it was created by the other comics publishers, principally DC, to uh, the Superman people, to uh, put EC out of business. They all thought of EC and their horror comics as being uh, pariahs in the industry. Well, and so they wanted to get rid of them. And the Comics Code Authority had a lot of power because it included not only comic book publishers, but the printers and the distributors as well. So if you didn't join the Comic Code Authority, you suddenly lost access to your printers and your distributors. The only two exceptions to this were Classics Illustrated, which was another educational comic attempt that didn't ever do very well commercially, but lasted for quite a while. And Dell Comics, which was the Walt Disney and the Bugs Bunny comics. Right. And, and they, they regarded the Comics Code Authority as too little, too late, and nothing that involved them at all. And they were big enough that they were able to get over it. But EC was forced to fold all their crime and horror titles and start something called New Direction. And they had new titles uh, like Valor, which was set in, in the days of nights, or Aces High, which was air war stories and things like that. They, they tried to find other ways. Impact, which is about a newspaper, uh, they, they tried to find these other ways to do what they had done so well. But the only thing that kept EC going was the oddball comic that uh, one of their editors, Harvey Kurtzman, had created in 1952, and that was Mad. And Mad got big. No. And after 20-odd issues as a comic book, it moved to becoming a 25-cent magazine in black and white, no longer in color. And uh, by 1954, thereabouts, 
EC folded all of their other comics. They just weren't making money and just continued with Mad. Well, at some point, I'm not really sure when, but I believe it was in the early 60s, uh, Bill Gaines essentially sold Mad to DC Comics, but with a deal that kept him on as the contractual publisher of Mad. So he remained more or less in control of Mad for the rest of his life. But at that point, he was part of the big DC Comics conglomeration. And DC by then was quite big because they were not only a comics publisher, they were a major distributor. They were, uh, what were they called? Independent News, I believe, but I'm not sure now. I don't remember the name of the distributor. Uh, DC had, uh, let's just, just say, some mob affiliations in the 30s. It has to be kept in mind that when bootleggers went out of business in 33, most of their money moved into magazine distribution. Interesting. Uh, I did and, not know that. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and then in, in the middle 60s, the mob actually bought DC. Uh, the, a mobster uh, owned something called Kinney Parking Systems, a Manhattan parking lot company. The mob liked to own companies like uh, diaper services and, and whatnot, wherein it was impossible to track inventory and you could launder your money through them. Right. So the guy who owned the, the Kinney parking systems, he went big and he bought DC and its distributor. And not content with that, in the late 60s, he bought a failing movie studio called Warner Brothers Seven Arts. And the whole company became Warner Publications and became very big. Subsequently, they bought Time, Life, and Fortune from the Loose Publishing Company. And after that, they acquired AOL. They were by by the turn of the millennium. They were a major corporation, and they had sort of well laundered and hidden their original mob origins and connections. So that's how EC ended up being part of DC and being part of the mob. But most of that happened after Bill Gaines's death. See, that's a that's a story I've not heard before because you talk about the Comics Code Authority. The the official line the history has always been that the Comics Code Authority came about because the 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 comics publishing industry didn't want the government regulating and censoring, so they decided to do it themselves. And to hear you that's sit true. there and say that that, that that was the official explanation for it. Because they, the Kefauver Commission in Congress was at that point investigating comic books as a source of juvenile delinquency. Right. This was fueled by Frederick Wortham's book, Seduction of the Innocent, which was very, very big in the early middle 50s. Uh, there were two interesting cultural phenomenons going on in the first half of the 50s. And one of them was blaming juvenile delinquency on comic books. The other was blaming juvenile delinquency on rock and roll. 
and there were sort of uh, dual things going on where local pastors and ministers were organizing bonfires at which you either tossed all your comic books onto the bonfire. These were community events. Or you were tossing your little 45 rock and roll singles onto the bonfire. Both of these were supposed to cure juvenile delinquency. Of course, neither did because they were both wrong about the causes of juvenile delinquency. But the EC got tarred with that brush unmercifully. Yeah. And the Comic Code Authority was very harsh on, on EC. They would they would do things like, for instance, EC had a science fiction story in one of the last issues of their science fiction comic book called Incredible Science Fantasy. And uh, in, in uh, that story, it's set on an alien planet, and the, the splash panel shows flying serpents with two pairs of wings located roughly one-third and two-thirds of the way back from the bodies of the serpents. And the code authority said, you can't do that. That's a travesty of angels. This is the level of their criticism. Well, finally, it got to the point where the final issue of DC science fiction comic the Code Authority had essentially totally nixed one of the four stories for that issue. And at that point, they knew it was their last issue, and they didn't want to commission and have written and, and drawn a completely new story. So they decided they would just reprint a story from earlier on. And they picked one that they figured would, would be above all criticism. It was called Judgment Day. And it's all about this ambassador for the Galactic Federation who is going to this planet to see whether it is ready yet to join the Federation. And it's an airless planet populated with robots. So the ambassador, you see him throughout the story in a spacesuit. You don't really see his face or anything. And it turns out there are two kinds of robots on this planet. There are the blue robots and the orange robots. And although they are identical before their paint jobs are applied, they're treated very differently. Mm. And the story is a direct, you know, parable about racism. Right. And in the final panel... The after telling them that they're not quite ready to join the Federation, the uh, ambassador of the Federation is back in his spaceship and he takes off his helmet and he's revealed to be black. Well, the Comic Code Authority said, you've got to make him white. And, and, and Bill Gaines threatened to raise holy hell. Mm. And so the story was published as originally with the with the ambassador being black. But to me, that was always a really good example of what was wrong with the Comics Code Authority. It, its rules said that the, you couldn't have unhappy endings, that uh, the human race, if up against some other race of, of creatures, 
always had to win. And there were a variety of other really silly strictures that essentially made the stories namby-pamby and dumbed down. Uh, I once was given some artwork to convey to a science fiction convention by DC Comics. I think this was around 1961. And the artwork was for Supergirl. And this was the original black and white artwork, you know, the big pages. Right. And I glanced through it. I wasn't very interested in it. I was not a fan of Supergirl at that point. I mean, I wasn't really reading comics by the 60s very much. Although I did start again with the Marvels. But uh, the thing I noticed about this was that every so often where Supergirl is shown in, in, in uh, what I guess you would call a low-cut gown, there would normally be a little straight vertical line indicating the breast cleavage. Right. All of those little lines have been whited out. <laughs> And it wasn't like it was licentious. It wasn't like it was uh, going to look really sexual. Right. If those lines had been left in. Just defining shape, and, and that was still too much. Yeah, the, the Comic Code Authority didn't want to deal with it. In 1966, I was at a Comic Con in New York City, and I was on a panel. No, I wasn't on the panel. I was a, at a, in the audience at a panel on which... Uh, members of the Comic Code Authority were the panel. And when it came time for questions from the audience, I got off some good ones. And I thoroughly <laughs> embarrassed the panel because they were unable to answer my questions about why did you do this? Like I mentioned Judgment Day. Why did you do that? They could not justify what they had done. And of course, by then, by the mid-60s, the Comic Code Authority had become more toothless. It was losing its power. Uh, I don't think that, uh, I, don't, I, I, I don't know whether there are still any Comic Code Authority seals on current day comic books. No, there haven't been in a long while. have any meaning long before they disappeared because the Comic Code Authority became toothless. Now, let me ask you, because at one point uh, when they were coming out to the fore, when they were in, in their in their early time, uh, Bradbury decided, go ahead and take my name off because he didn't want to get hit with that. Uh, any kind of negative negative blowback or or out or, or, or fallout. Was there a time where you had more writers who maybe have gone by other, you know, like pseudonyms or let's let's take my name off because they didn't want to get painted with that that broad a brush that they were they were violating the code or anything like that. I'm unaware of any, but you got to keep in mind all the Bradbury's EC stories appeared before the code, and and I don't think Bradbury had his name taken off of anything, but. Because it wasn't happening by then. I mean, okay. the code, EC published maybe a year or two years of comics under the code before giving up. But none of those comics had Bradbury stories in them. I got you. Okay. All right. Well, now, um, 
let me ask you then how you got involved in this collection because you're a contributor here. There are a number of other people that are contributing essays to all of this. How did you get involved in this in this new book? Well, there are several different answers for that, but the basic <laughs> one was that I'm a good friend of the people who put out the book. Mike Catron and Gary Groth, uh, who own Fantagraphics, the publisher. And I've known Gary Groth since he was a high school kid putting on comic cons in D.C. Uh, in the early 70s. And uh, I've stayed his friend over the years through his various business enterprises. I've often been a contributor. Uh, he put on something called the Rock Expo in, in 75 in D.C., which was a success in every respect except financially. Gary <laughs> lost money on it. That's usually um, how those go, isn't it? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, he had lost money on his, his comic cons, but he had hoped to make money on the Rock Expo, and it was well put together. Uh, the the guest of honor was Hunter S. Thompson, and... Uh, I was the MC at the program, and I got to hang out with Hunter before I introduced him to the audience, which I found very enjoyable. But most of what that Rock Expo was was a large dealer's room where people, you know, bought and sold old records and whatnot. And I, I, I met people there that I became friends with who were uh, in the record industry, and. Uh, the only thing that Gary came out of that convention with that was an asset was his mailing list. So Gary started up a magazine called Sounds Fine, which was a publication for people who were buying and selling records. You know, I would say maybe 60 to 70 percent of it was advertisements, small classifieds and big displays. Uh, but the remainder was was written content. So I wrote for that. I wrote for Sounds Fine. Well, at a certain point, Gary sold Sounds Fine to the people who were doing a very similar publication called Trouser Press. And I did not go over to Trouser Press. But Gary, at around that time, bought a semi-fanzine called Nostalgia Journal which he turned into the comics journal. Okay. Which persists to this day. Right. It's the backbone of his publishing empire, so to speak. And I have written for comics journal on and off over the years. I, for those a period uh, in the early eighties when I was re re reviewing comic books for it. In fact, uh, uh, Gary and I were sued over one of my reviews oh. by, because I had called an artist a plagiarist. But I hadn't just called him a plagiarist. We published side-by-side -side examples of his art and the art he was plagiarizing. Oh, and it my. was obvious beyond uh, any doubt. But this, this guy who was something of a jerk pressed a lawsuit against this, which ultimately he dropped because, of course, he had no chance of winning it. And I guess his lawyers finally talked him out of it. Yeah. But so my involvement with Gary has been 
pretty much throughout his career. And at some point, God, it's quite a few years ago now, uh, Fantagraphics Books, which is Gary's book company, started doing republication of EC Comics. Now, EC officially died in 54 or thereabouts, but it never really quite did die. There have always been republications of the EC comics because they were that good. Um, there were a number of books published which were the same size as the Bradbury book, which is about the size of the original artwork. But these were published in full color. The Bradbury book is in black and white. But these were full color books that were uh, published that uh, each book had maybe three or four issues of a particular EC title in it. And they're collector's items now. They go for one and two hundred dollars a piece when you can find them. But uh, after that, there were comic books actual comic book size comic books published uh, in the late 80s by some publisher that were republications of EC Comics, but uh, collected uh, three or four titles in the comic book. Uh, even later, uh, DC actually reprinted all of the mad comic books, the 20-odd mad comic books in a set of volumes that were comic book sized and, and not hardcover. Right. So there have always been some of these things going on, but Fantagraphics decided to do a different approach. Up until then, whole issues of EC Comics had been republished in one form or another. They decided to go a different route and collect the work of individual artists into individual books. So it would be a book of Wallace Wood's art or a book of Joe Orlando's art or so forth and so on. And there are, I don't know, close to 30 of those books now. And I have an afterword in all of them, <laughs> which it, it's the same piece. I didn't rewrite it for each book, but it describes how MC Gaines created EC Comics and how EC Comics evolved into what most fans think of as EC Comics. Now, so I, I was doing those, and those are still coming out. I got one yesterday. Uh, it's a Johnny Craig uh, uh, volume. And uh, so when they decided to do the Bradbury volume, they asked me to do something for it. And I chose to write about how Bradbury became a writer and started writing for the Pulps. And, and then I, I referenced various of his Pulp stories that EC used as to where they originally appeared, Weird Tales or Dime Mystery or what have you. And uh, so that's my contribution to the Bradbury volume. So, are, I'm not the only one. There's a half dozen of us who have text pieces in that volume. So let me ask you, with 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 this coming out, and you know, EC, 
essentially never really going away. How much influence do you think that EC Comics had on the rest of the industry after it was gone? That's a good question, and I'm inclined to say not much, uh, because after it was gone, the industry was in the throes of the Comic Code Authority for all of the remainder of the 50s and well into the 60s, and superheroes came back. I mean, essentially, DC started reviving superheroes in the late 50s with mm. Flash and Green Lantern and Justice League. And then uh, in the very early 60s, Marvel started out Fantastic Four and Spider-Man and then added other characters and titles. And so the superhero craze took over the comics industry as it hadn't since the 30s and 40s. Well, EC never did superheroes, so it's hard to see any influence possible under those circumstances. But at the same time, uh, the artists from EC did go on, you know, to other careers. Like Joe Orlando became a major editor at DC. Right. Uh, but uh, not so much as an artist, just as an editor. Uh, Frank Rosetta, we've already discussed how he went on to much greater fame. Jack Davis, he did a lot of TV guide covers and some movie posters. And then in the uh, 60s, Jim Warren came along. Now, Jim Warren was by then the successful publisher of uh, Famous Monsters of Filmland, a very popular movie horror magazine. Right. Edited by Forrey Ackerman. Uh, and he wanted to do comic books. And he asked a fellow named Archie Goodwin, who had been an EC fan and, and actually was a friend of mine, we, we were EC fans together in the 50s. Uh, and and, and a very talented artist and, 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 and writer. And he started editing a couple of, of horror titles for Jim Warren. And he is the only one that I can honestly say really showed the EC influence. And the stories that he did for Warren for Creepy and Eerie were very much in the EC style and, and often made use of EC artists or artists who drew in the EC style. Now, I'm, I'm looking through this and I see a few of these stories are framed in the Crypt of Terror and you have this character named the Crypt Keeper. Is this the precursor to Tales from the Crypt? Or is this? Does this just happen to be something similar? You mean the TV show? Yeah, well, yeah, the that that whole that whole shtick. Yes, the answer is yes. That's where they come from. EC had three horror titles: the Crypt of Terror, the Vault of Horror. Well, actually, the Crypt of Terror became Tales from the Crypt, and there was the Vault of Horror, and I forget what the third one was called, but. 
each title had its uh, ongoing narrator, the crypt keeper, the vault uh, keeper, what have you, you know, and, and they introduced each story. Now, so that was an ongoing feature of those comics. When you look at this this collection marrying Bradbury's writing with comic book art, would something like this possibly get published today with new material? I mean, because Bradbury's a huge influence. He's very popular. He's, he's long long term science fiction author who's influenced a lot of people. But do you see, would you see something like this happening now where you take modern authors of today and marry them up with, with comic book art? Or is this, this medium, this style of thing, a thing of the past? Is this a relic or is this something that maybe we could look at and do, do again? Well, I don't think I'm competent to answer that because I, no longer am au courant with comics. I mean, comics have changed drastically since the days of my involvement. My involvement included the Stan Lee Marvel period. I mean, Stan and I were friends, and I wrote the Captain America book, The Great Gold Steel, in the late 60s, uh, but, uh, which people are still talking about. But uh, I'm not up on the current comic books which are you know they're they're not sold to kids anymore yeah and they they they're sold to specialty bookstores comic book stores they have a much smaller and more limited audience they cost a lot more the production values are much higher uh and uh it's quite possible that somebody doing one of the or you know one line of them might decide to do something like Bradbury adaptations. But I'm not sufficiently aware of what's happening currently to tell you who would be likely or how likely. So with all of your history in comics, what makes for you a successful comic book? What elements have to go into a book in order to, and I know sometimes it's hit and miss depending on the audience, depending on your subject matter, but what makes a good comic book? Huh. Well, <laughs> that's a deep question, isn't it? Uh, I would have to say it all depends on what you're looking for in a comic book. When I was a kid, you know, when I was uh, in grade school, I was a big fan of the superheroes of the 40s. You know, Flash, Green Lantern, Superman, Batman, that sort of thing. And at that time, if you'd asked me, I would tell you what made them good was the artwork. Because I wasn't really very aware of the quality of the writing or the how good or bad the stories were. But I did notice the artists. Like, there was a period in the late 40s when The Flash was drawn by Lee Elias, who was a really good comics artist who was later in, in newspaper strips. But uh, certainly when I first got into EC Comics, it was initially the quality of the art that, that, that uh, caught my attention. I, I had pretty much given up on, on uh, 
superhero comics by the time I discovered ECs. ECs were not well distributed. And I never saw ECs on my local comic book racks in the local drugstores when I was younger. I had to go five miles away to find the nearest place that sold ECs. And that's a bit much on a bicycle. But once I had a motor scooter, it was more feasible. Yeah. But uh, so I was in high school before I discovered ECs. I was probably 13. Uh, and... Uh, so my attitudes were changing. I was, by the time I was reading ECs, I was also reading science fiction magazines, you know. I, I, my tastes were evolving as I got into my teens. So what makes a good comic book? Well, I think that depends on the nature of the comic book. If it's a superhero comic, I think Stan Lee put his finger on it. You know, he... Until Stan started doing Fantastic Four and Spider-Man, the superhero comics had no depth. The characters were characters with gimmicks, mm -hmm. and the stories revolved around those gimmicks and the occasional failure of a gimmick. You know, Superman had his kryptonite. Right. Of that. And... Uh, they didn't revolve around the internal life of Superman, say. They didn't involve... I mean, Superman always seemed to ha kind of have Lois Lane as his girlfriend, but it was very, very uh, bland. There, there was no romance between them. He just rescued her at odd moments from, from various <laughs> dire situations. Uh, but when we got to the Fantastic Four, and then later, and shortly after that, Spider-Man, we had characters who had internal lives, who had problems in their internal lives, that they had to resolve that their superpowers were no, no benefit to. Uh, this was a giant step forward for superheroes. Now... For all I know, by now it's been taken too far. I don't know. <laughs> there, I have to understand. I was a huge comic book fan as a kid. No, I was actually written up in the local DC newspaper as the kid with ten thousand comics. Uh, I I actually went to the Library of Congress in 1952, and requested copies of late 30s and early 40s DC comics in the reading room. And I turned in a list of over 50 and they delivered to me about a dozen that they actually had, which was a great disappointment to me. But that's when I realized the Library of Congress does not keep everything. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I was, I was much into comics. I did a little publication in 1952, mimeographed four by six inch little publication called the true facts of superman or something like that it was a half dozen pages it's now worth hundreds of dollars among collectors you know i was part of uh, the beginnings of ec fandom and uh i published an ec fanzine called uh patrabia or patresby as some people pronounce it it's it's a word out of mad 
uh, it's a Polish word, but it's not a complete word. It's like a suffix to a word. Mm. Something it's it's a modifier. But but Harvey Kurtzman encountered it and thought it was a neat word and started just throwing it in at random and mad. <laughs> but it was still a comic. So, and my friends in EC fandom were uh, Larry Stark, who was such a, a an astute critic of EC comics that EC gave him permanent lifetime subscriptions to all their comics because they valued his letters so highly. Hmm. Uh, now there was Bob Stewart, who uh, spelled his name B H O B, and uh, who uh, mostly was working as an artist then, but he put out the very first EC fanzine. Uh, and another was Fred Von Bernowitz, who actually lived in my area, and we were friends before we were involved in anything else. And he did the EC, um, what do you call them? Uh, I want to say discography, but that's wrong. Uh, he, he did the EC checklists, which initially were... Uh, I mimeographed him. I had a mimeograph, and I mimeographed him for him. And eventually, they ended up as this, which is another Fantagraphics book, and is the complete compendium of all the incredible old EC comics, including Tales from Crip Mad and Weird Science. It's, it is Fred's checklist done really well with uh, color color covers for each issue. Nice. So, you know, that was that was the ultimate version of Fred's EC checklist. And that was published uh, a few years ago by, by Fantagraphics. So let me ask you, is there is there still value? Because we do all of this stuff online anymore, and everybody's got their own blog and their website, and they got a YouTube channel, and they got a Twitch channel, all of this. Is there any value to a printed fanzine still, do you think? I mean, is there is are there still people out there, do you think, would would do something like this? Because we, we deal with um, the national. Uh, what's who's what's George's outfit? George George Philly's outfit. They they still have a the national fan, uh, fan federation. They've got a number of different fanzine publications, but it's all electronic now. Well, that is the trend in science fiction fanzines. I don't know about comic fanzines. Uh, the comic fan see originally. Comic fanzines were much like science fiction fanzines, which is where they got their inspiration, because most of the people who put out the first comic fanzines were also science fiction fans, and we're familiar with the concept of fanzines. Yeah. And all those early ones were published using cheap duplication methods, either Mimeo or Spirit Duplication, called Ditto. And these were commonly available in churches and schools and whatnot, and, and kids could get, get access to them or even own Mimeos, as I did. But, uh, and the first issues of Alter Ego, which was the first superhero comics fanzine that started in the very early 60s, 
those were published by Spirit Duplication initially. Uh, that was Jerry Bales and, and Roy Thomas. And, and it's amazing to think I've known them that long. I mean, uh, uh, Jerry's dead now, but Roy, I'm still in touch with. And he's still doing a, another version of Alter Ego now, which is essentially a professional magazine. Right. Uh, but um, at some point within a couple of years of that, comic book fans were figuring out that these were not ideal media in which to reproduce amateur comic art, much less professional comic art. And of course, what they died for was to get a tossed off sketch from a real comic book pro, which they could publish in their fanzine. Well, they wanted to do it justice. The best way to do it justice was photographically. So photo offset became the primary means of doing comics fanzines. And photo offset was then and probably still a much more expensive medium because you had to pay a printer to do it. Right. And at that point, some of them started selling ads to support their fanzines. And then they, they began shifting around and becoming quasi-professional in nature. And, 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 of course, many of the people who were doing those fanzines, like Roy Thomas, just moved into the industry and started doing comics. Well, and, and out of that also, you had, you know, publications. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned a couple of them, but, you know, you look at the, the famous film monsters. You've got uh, Starlog. You've got Fang Fangoria, Cinefantastique. Yeah, those are all, all magazines. Yeah, there never were fanzines. Right, but a lot of people who started with fanzines ended up in that, like you said, in that industry where they're actually writing professionally for these things. And it's, it's a that, natural progression. Yeah, but I, I, I think that at some point it would be fun to have those maybe come back a little bit. May I, I don't know. Maybe I'm of an age where the nostalgia kicks in a little bit much, and <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I mean. Because I, I remember Mimeo and and such. I remember the smell of the ink, and you know, it's just like there's well, something Ditto, about it. Ditto was the one that had the 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 smell. The, uh, the Ditto process involves the use of an alcohol-based fluid that moistens the sheet of paper as it goes through, and it transfers a little bit of carbon off of the Ditto master onto the sheet of paper because the paper is slightly moist with that fluid so every sheet as it came out of the machine was breathing fumes <laughs> and if you were running that machine you were breathing the fumes right? too some people actually got off on that yeah i i never i never had that experience but i definitely do remember the smell that there it there's it's something very distinct about it you can't recreate it but I did find a, a a recipe for it online at one point, but um, yeah, it's yeah the 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 purple ink. Yeah. Well, the the ink wasn't the fluid. I mean, it's a carbon transfer process, just like hectograph. Okay. And that's okay. why you can only get a limited number of copies. You use up the carbon that's on the master, 
at somewhere between 100 and 300 copies, depending on the quality of the carbons you were using. See, basically, you were typing or drawing on a piece of paper, which was your master, your ditto master. And on the backs, against the back of it, is a separate uh, carbon sheet with this special purple carbon. And you either typed on it or you drew on it. And it transferred the carbon to the back of the page. So there's now a mirror image of what you wrote or drew or typed. Mm -hmm. So when you print it, it comes out the right way around. And uh, this was a very easy method to use. Uh, and you could actually get some other colors of carbon. You could even get yellows. You, typically, you got reds, blues, blacks, and yellows. But the yellow was hard to come by because it was mostly European. And the other colors did not last as long as the purple did because the purple aniline dye was uh, the most... Uh, Durable, I guess, in the sense. Now, the other thing about ditto material was that if you left a printed copy sitting out in the sunlight, it would fade. Right. I, I, I seem to remember that. It's been a... So some people, if they left their fanzine sitting, you know, by a window where there was sun shining on them on uh, successive days... They could see the art disappearing from the covers of the fanzines, which was not desirable. Right. Mimeo didn't have that problem. So the this book is out on October twenty fifth. Uh, it is uh, it is called Home to Stay. It is a collection of Ray Bradbury stories married up with artwork from Easy Comics. And Ted White, a contributor on that. What's next for you? What have you got coming up uh, in addition to this? Oh, gee, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I'm still writing science fiction occasionally, getting it published in the various magazines. Uh, and I have a story that I'm working on right now that I haven't finished. But... Uh, you know, I'm in my 80s. I'm not pushing it anymore. I would say that the the bulk of my career is obviously behind me. And I'm just happy that all of my books are still in print. And I mean, I have over a dozen science fiction books available. The only one of my books that is not available is the... Uh, Captain uh, America book, Great Gold Steel, because I do not own the rights to that. Marvel owns the rights to that. And uh, Marvel has never seen fit to reissue it. And that's on them. I wouldn't get any more money from it if they did. Now, if they decided to uh, to adapt that as part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, would you have any objection to that? Uh, I think it's unlikely at this point because I think they moved beyond it. But sure, I'd be happy to see it happen. 
it'd be even nicer to get some money for it, but I don't <laughs> expect I would. Even a credit line would be nice. Yeah. But, you know, uh, I'm not holding my breath. So where can people find you online if they want to follow your work and, and see what you've got next? I, I, I'm seeing a number of different places where you've got some essays and some reviews and such. But is there a central repository where people can find the work of Ted White? Sure. Amazon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, all of my books are available as either ebooks or printed on demand. Okay. And uh, they're available from a couple of different publishers, and uh, but they're all there on Amazon. And uh, uh, I urge people to go look for them and buy them if they're interested. I mm. mean, uh, I think that they hold up pretty well. Okay. Well, we will uh, we will have a link to that, and uh, also the uh, the book uh, Home to Stay is out on the twenty fifth. Ted White, thank you very much for being here, sir. It's been a very, very distinct pleasure. Uh, well, and we may we may have to have you back to get more in-depth on the Comics Code Authority and just do a whole show on that. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think there's some more stories to be told there. There probably are. <laughs> uh, you know, I my history with comics, which is largely from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, uh is extensive i mean i edited heavy metal magazine at one point i see the collection of of metal hurlant behind you there that's uh that's that's an impressive uh that's a pre an impressive spread that you got there behind you on the shelf yeah as you probably are aware that was the french magazine that uh gave rise to heavy metal right uh they the people at national lampoon uh, we're having stories from comic strips, one-page comic strip stories from National Lampoon republished in a French magazine called Pilot, which is a kind of a broad publication, you know, science fiction, romance, adventure, Western, all kinds of European comics of high quality. And a group of people who were writing and drawing for Pilot decided to form their own company called Le, Le, Le hum, Humanoids. And they began Metal Herlant as their cooperatively owned publication. They sent copies of it to Sean Kelly at National Lampoon. And he said to the Nat Lamp people, hey, we should do one of these. And that's how heavy metal got started. So what you see behind me on my shelves, those are uh, collections of the first four or five years of Natal Hanon and, and, and really valuable stuff. <laughs> not, not commonly available in this country. Right. All right, sir. Well, we will let you get to the rest of your uh, your, your day. Thanks very much for being here, and we definitely will uh, we'll try to have you back, and we'll we'll talk further about lots of different things. And I'm sure you've got plenty of stories to tell, and uh, we would be happy to uh, to oh, listen to. That. All right. Well, thank you very much for being here, and thank you to everybody for uh, staying for the hour. And don't forget, we will have more throughout the week, various different conversations. This show is on Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern. 
And then, of course, we have other programs as well. So be sure to check all of those out. And, of course, we do invite you to connect with us on all of our different social media platforms and our video platforms and such. And uh, we will be back to do this all again. So in the meantime, remember, there are four lights. Copyright 2022 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.